Lisa, I know we need to talk about this conversation, what's happening right now in America, race, the riots. I'm so uncomfortable to start this conversation with you, knowing, with equal knowing that this conversation needs to be had. I think one of the things that we've really tried to do with Trust Tree and with this podcast in particular is to be honest with who we are and to show up authentically. And I am uncomfortable as well. I also recognize that unless we are having a conversation about what's happening around us, nothing's ever going to change. And we have got to create change in our world and we have got to create action because it has been hundreds and hundreds of years that Black lives have not mattered as much as they should have. And I realize not wanting to have this conversation puts my discomfort as a white woman in front of years of oppression of Black people. And that's the first thing that needs to stop. One of the things I thought we could start with is actually something that WSU published in their statement really speaks to the words that Martin Luther King Jr. offered in the summer of 1967. And so, I mean, it's a pretty powerful statement, and I think it helps to kind of frame uh, a conversation around what can we each do to increase our self-awareness and to listen. Riot is the language of the unheard. And what is that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summer of riots are caused by our nation's winter of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these reoccurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Those words were spoken in 1967. Like how many years it's been. <laughs> what has changed since then? And we're still in a summer of riots. And I'm really proud that we're in the summer of riots because we're not being hurt and Black Lives Matter. I wasn't alive in the summer of 67 and neither one of you were alive either. No. And that's a long ass time ago to be um, still fighting the same fight. So when I hear black people say that they are tired, I can imagine the depth of their exhaustion because that's just screaming into the void for that's over 50 years, but it's really over 400 years is yeah. the history of racism and this country? You know, I have watched and I've read all of these statements that have come out over the last several weeks in response to George Floyd's death. And some feel very self-serving. Some feel as though uh, it's a bit condescending and patronizing and some have felt incredibly authentic. And the one for me that I really, that really resonated and it, it might be my love for Cougs, but I did feel like the message from Washington State University was an appropriate one. And the entire message was around acknowledging the tragedies and a call to action for self-awareness. And if there's anything that I'm hoping our conversation today can do, as uncomfortable as it is for both of us, it's a call to action to examine how we're showing up, what words we're using, 
I thought that your message was so bold and profound. You had posted on social media, muted, but listening. And that to me is what I hope we're going to try and do by having this conversation. It's so important that we stop processing kind of our own stories or our own experience with diversity. And we start listening to what others experience has been with diversity. So I'm curious if perhaps you can maybe share a little bit about how you first became aware of race issues and and when did diversity become a part of your thinking? I'm super sensitive about the white centering of me sharing my stories about race and like my awakening. But I also want other white women like me to hear the journey I've been on to maybe learn something or see themselves and see maybe what we can do together. So when I was in my early 20s, I worked for Clark County. And if you've ever worked for Clark County, this story is going to blow your mind because we had diversity and inclusion training (laughs) in the 90s. And I was, you know, in my 20s. So I was dreading going because I already knew everything. So why would I need to go to this diversity inclusion training? And as a white suburban middle class kid, like, Obviously, I didn't know Jack, but I I didn't know Jack. So we went in. It was like a full day training. It just had that total, I can recall, just that total annoyance of, you know, work training. And we got there and it wasn't led by outside facilitators. It was led by employees of Clark County. In particular, one of the trainers was uh, a man named Paul Harris, a, a black man who worked in the auditor's office. And I had seen him because I recorded plats, so I interacted with him, but I didn't, you know, really know him. And he shared his story of being a black man. Uh, he'd grown up uh, on the East Coast and had moved to the Pacific Northwest. But he also shared his story that he was uh, as a black gay man. And that just blew my freaking mind that he... Um, was so brave to tell his story in that white room uh, in the early 90s and to share his vulnerability. But for me to learn about Stonewall, for me to learn about the experience of the LGBTQ plus community, which we just called the gay community in the 90s. So there's been a lot of learning and growth there. And um, he was so sensitive. It was so well delivered. And it it made me look around at everybody in the room. And it made me look at like the woman next to me, Linda from Mapping, who I just thought was like this middle-aged cat lady. And I didn't have anything in common with her. And, and we just got to talking because there was so much warmth in the room when when the message went out that we're all different but we can be tolerant. We can meet each other where we're at and we can see the beauty in each other and honor each other's experiences. For a young woman who had not a huge world experience, that was incredibly enlightening for me and also piqued my curiosity. So I did start reading about the history of Black people in America and gay people in America. And that's just sort of 
who I am as I turn to books because folks, there was no Google. So <laughs> I had to do it the hard way. But that was really my dawning realization. That's like my origin story about understanding. And we didn't use the word white, white privilege then, but I did begin to understand my place in the hierarchy of things. And it's been, you know, a journey uh, since then. And I've said stupid things. I've done stupid things. I have you know, huge learning to continue to do around it. I don't set myself up as somebody who has figured anything out. But I will say that from that point, I was far more aware that there were things I didn't know about other people's lived experience. So that's my story, Lisa. Well, so my story, I think I've shared pieces of it, but I was adopted in a white family, um, a very blue collar, not college educated family. And I had a lot of condescending, you're so lucky someone took you in kind of behavior around the fact that adopting a child that is a child of color is really a, (laughs) I, I should be really blessed and I should be really thankful that someone took me in when my birth parents gave me up. Which, of course, there's so much more to that story than the simplicity of a statement like that. But they are both very white. So my adopted mother is five foot two, maybe 100 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. She's got kind of a Czech background, Czechoslovakian. So completely opposite my coloring. Um, and my adopted father had at least dark hair. So there seemed like there was some reason that I was there, but it was all the time. I mean, we, I would get my hair cut and someone would say, oh, you have the same nose. Clearly we don't have the same nose. I mean, we don't. And uh, trying to find ways to make it okay that we look like each other, because that would therefore mean that I belong in this family. Because if we don't physically look like each other, then I don't belong. I'm not a part of it. And it has certainly haunted me in terms of my sense of needing to belong with people and needing to feel like I have a right to belong with them. I would say that the microaggressions have been over my entire life. I just had no name for it. I didn't know what that was. Constantly people asking me, where are you from? (laughs) I'm from the hood. I'm from Troutdale, (laughs) Oregon, you know, from a low income area and constantly trying to fit me into a box. Well, then you must be, but are you Mexican? Are you black? Like some sort of black? What, uh, what are you? Where are you from? And uh, I, I just kind of grew up with that. Well, I didn't understand how that deeply affected my ability to feel any sort of sense of connection, either with my culture or with other people. I'm constantly looking for people to validate that I belong with them. And I have really believed that what we're trying to do with trust tree is create a sense of belonging. Like you belong with us together. We are trust tree. And that is my deep sense of, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what class you're from. I don't care, you know, whether you're a first generation college or not, you belong with us. And it is my personal deep mission to, to help people feel a sense of belonging because it's been 
such a really terrible journey for me. I just have never had the words to put in place. And, and then, you know, my adopting adoption story leads to meeting my biological parents and uh, my biological mom doesn't necessarily look like me. I don't feel like I look like my siblings, but I have a sense of some similarities. I meet my Hawaiian family and it's like, I'm home. Like it is the deepest sense of belonging that I have ever felt. And I don't know, I didn't know them and I didn't meet them until, you know, I was into my forties, but it's that physical connection that makes me believe that I belong with them and they're dark. You know, I'm the lightest. And while I was over there for six weeks, I got much darker, but I hear their stories and I hear in particular, the Hawaiian monarchy is taken over by Dole Pineapple and CNH Sugar and how this queen is imprisoned in her palace. And it is the most gracious example of leadership that instead of sacrificing her people, she chooses to not encourage them to fight. It, it, and I think about my daughter, who looks very white, who just wrote a paper about a movement, and she chose that moment, that movement that occurred by white people. And and I think I have done something right, that she now understands and can identify with her culture, and that she is, she does have some color in her, and it's okay to talk about, it, and it's okay to be proud of, and she used it as her final school project in the seventh grade. But I don't know that I would have been as awake because I see myself as white. I don't see myself or I didn't see myself as a person of color until I could completely own that. And my dad is 100% Native Hawaiian. So, I mean, this isn't like I got 10% Hawaiian in me. I am 50% Hawaiian. And I just feel so compelled to say my story isn't everyone's story. I certainly don't want to say that every adopted child should find their biological families because my story has been beautiful and both families have been deeply generous in accepting me and welcoming me. But I do believe that color and race impacts your ability to have a sense of belonging and to be heard and to have someone validate, I heard you. It may not be the same story that I shared, but I'm listening. And and that's what I'm just so impressed with anyone who is white right now who is shutting up and listening i love that you shared how you became awake i think that's an important conversation and story to share i also think that we whether i'm a person of color or i am white need to listen and we need to listen in a way where our hearts are open to to really understanding that's a beautiful story you have not shared it with me in that language before that's powerful to hear that. We have seen all these different responses. A lot of companies, leaders, individuals have felt compelled to say something. I think we've also seen a silence and organizations that haven't said anything. And I'm curious what conversations they've had in their conference rooms or on their virtual conference room meetings in Zoom. There have been rallies and riots, and during a moment where we have a pandemic, it seems like it's this really 
strange intersection of we shouldn't be coming together. We should be staying apart. Yet there's such a pull to want to come together and to demonstrate that Black Lives Matter. And I'm curious for you, you had the ability to participate in the car rally that happened here in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. And I was unaware that it was happening until it right before it happened. So we weren't able to, to head out and be a part of it. I was so overwhelmed and so proud of our community that we had so many, I mean, thousands of people show up and be a part of this. Tell me a little bit about what your experience was with the car rally. So the car rally was organized by the Vancouver chapter of the NAACP, which has very deep roots in this community. It's a very active, effective NAACP. So in their desire to create an event where people could come out in a pandemic and being mindful of where everyone is at, they were able to meet people where they are at and do this car rally. So we all met up at the old Tower Mall location. It was overwhelming to see the number of cars. They estimate like 2,000 cars were there. And it was like a four-hour parade of cars from the Tower Mall down to the landing on the waterfront. They're lining you up and they're and they're moving you around and trying to like stage everyone. You're really, you're in your car for a long time. (laughs) So you can check out other people. And it was pouring down rain. Uh, And even with that, with the deluge, there was a carnival kind of atmosphere. People were getting out of their cars a little bit and leading some chants and there was honking and everything was meticulously organized. So as an event person, I was (laughs) incredibly impressed with how they moved people through. It it felt safe. It felt warm. It did just delight me that this community could come together and show our communities of color that there are people out there that this community does support them. I know it hasn't been a visible presence uh, in support of communities of color previously. And the negative incidents certainly get far more play than the positive incidents. So it was overwhelming, really, to see this and to be a part of it. And then afterwards, we participated in one of the rallies at uh, Esther Sharp Park that then marched over to uh, the courthouse. And I have to say, you know me, me being at a rally in a car, sure, like that makes sense, that tracks, but outside in a rally chanting uh, in a pandemic, like now that you're like, hmm, no, that doesn't sound like something Elizabeth would do. Even when I feel strongly about something, it's, um, I don't like crowds too much, but my 16 year old daughter is incredibly passionate about social justice and that's another way that things are going to change is this generation behind us is so motivated and so passionate and just locked on to that this needs to change. And she got her dad out there too. And the power of that is he's in an actual real position to affect systemic change. 
and she's affecting him. She's teaching him. He's listening to her. He's learning from her as she learns from the communities of color and her friends. And it was just a real beautiful moment to see that that is how the tide starts to turn. That's how the boat starts to get turned in a, in a better direction. It's, it's generationally and it's, she has access. She has white privilege and she's using it. She's using it effectively. And I'm so incredibly proud of her. I've had two conversations with two white male leaders recently about what they can do. And as we start to think about dismantling structures and and systems, because we're really talking about systems that are inherently built for white men. And you and I have had our own experiences with the impact of being a woman in a white male dominated industry company. I mean, you name it, we've been a part of that. So it's not difficult to imagine what that might be like in a system where you're a person of color um, trying to work within something that isn't built for you or doesn't recognize your differences and honor those differences. And both of these white men said, and I think it's similar to the comment you made about your husband, it's going to take me doing something to make a change for real systematic change to happen. And I really believe that they're correct. What I love about that is, is they're willing to also use their white privilege for good. And we have got to have white men that say, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to help make a change. You tell me what you need and I will make it happen. And in particular, one of these gentlemen actually is married to a woman of color. They have children that are biracial. And his comment was, I never want to walk into another room that looks exactly like me again. And the way in which I can affect change is who I hire and who I recruit to be involved in leading my organization. Absolutely. You are right. Reach. How can I help you? Yeah. And and that is what it's going to take. So the more, again, the more opportunity each of us to just take a moment and say, what can I do? Mm-hmm. What just one step can I make? And, and I have to tell you that I am really emotionally overwhelmed by this conversation. I didn't think that I would be, but actually talking about it is hard. It's hard to share our personal experiences. And because it's hard, it means we have to do more of it. That's absolutely true. And we have to move past the defensiveness. You know, you can pick up white fragility and read all about that. Um, But I I see the initial response is, you know, you say that about white people, but I'm not like that. Or, you know, I don't have white privilege because that somehow sounds like you are holding yourself up or something, or I've had it hard. You know, I've had to come up the hard way. So don't tell me about my privilege. And if we could just take a minute and breathe into the fact that white privilege is real and white supremacy is what this society was founded on. And it doesn't mean that you're bad that you have white privilege. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It's that you're a fish and you're swimming in this society. You don't see the water. You don't see the patriarchy because it's all you know. 
And I heard this wonderful quote on a Brené Brown podcast that was such a learning for me and helped me diffuse some of that defensiveness that I have around, you know, I want to be seen as kind. I want to see be seen as compassionate and to divorce myself from that these statements are about me as an individual. They're they're not. Brené was interviewing the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. I had to look, look at the book over my shoulder. And she was talking because Brené, you know, she just goes hard and she just goes right into the tough topics. And I love her for that. But she was talking about this defensiveness and and our fear of saying something wrong, which is, God, I live with that. And that instead of when somebody corrects you, you get defensive and, and, you know, like, oh, I didn't mean it that way, or no, I'm a good person. If you could just accept it with this idea of, thank you for the umbrella. I didn't know it was raining. And I was like, oh my God, like, yes. Like, I didn't know I was wet, but you're giving me a tool so I can be dry. Like that is so powerful and so easy to understand. And it has helped me so much in even stepping further away from my knee jerk reaction, which is where I want to defend myself and be like, well, not this white person. Like she's woke. Like I got so much work to do and it's okay. Like it's like expecting a baby not to struggle and fall down when they learn to walk. You, there's a process. There's a learning process. Hail to sister Renee Brown. <laughs> right. Wow. Absolutely. I think that what I'm hoping Trust Tree can do as it relates to this topic and, and others that are hard is to be able to say, we see you and we're listening and we want to hear you. And so as uncomfortable as conversations can be, as polarizing as our opinions can be, you and I have been committed for a really long time to civil discourse and we have to be able to disagree and still come together and have a conversation. What I'm so curious about is the stories of our community and of the women that make up this community whether white or black, this is a topic that I think we should be having a conversation about. And, and I wonder what is it going to take to make real change? And, you know, you made a comment early on in our conversation before we hit record that I think is so important. So Beth, I'm going to ask you, what do you think it's going to take to make some real change here? I just wanted to float the idea that if we could marshal an army of Karens, who wanted to speak to society's manager, I think we could create some real systemic change because those Karens aren't afraid to use their privilege. They just need to use it for good instead of for maintaining the status quo. I think what the Karens need to understand is they don't need to drive the bus. They can let women of color and black women drive the bus. They just get off the bus and do what they're directed to do. Like, you know, any good army, (laughs) your regiment, you tell them what to do, right? I think there's moments where we can lead and there's moments where we can follow. And this is a moment where we need to follow. And it's taken several hundred years to get to this moment. So it's time. Black lives do matter. 
And here at Trust Tree, we want to we want to honor that and we want to honor those stories. And we just want everyone to know that we're muted and listening. <laughs>